Welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Climate Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. China has recently adopted a relatively low profile when it comes to addressing climate change. At the COP26 climate conference in Glasgow, Scotland, the most notable news related to China may in fact have been the failure of its president, Xi Jinping, to attend or address the conference directly. The Chinese leader's absence was remarkable, given the country's position as the top global emitter of greenhouse gases, and also in light of the leadership role that China has taken at other global climate conferences over the past few years. On today's podcast, we'll look at some of the factors that have contributed to China's recent avoidance of the climate spotlight, including energy and real estate crises that pose a threat to the nation's economic health. More broadly, we'll examine the political vulnerabilities that the pursuit of a low-carbon energy system presents for China's governing powers, and how these considerations may shape the country's future climate action and the pace of its energy transition. Here to talk about China's energy and climate policies is my guest, Scott Moore. Scott is a political scientist and director of China Programs and Strategic Initiatives at the University of Pennsylvania. Scott, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Andy. So I want to start out by stating something that's obvious, but nonetheless really merits highlighting for the context of our conversation today. And that's the fact that when it comes to energy, China really is a country of superlatives, right? It is the world leader in the build-out of clean energy infrastructure. It's the dominant player in the global solar supply chain. It's the leader in the production of electric vehicles. On the flip side, it's also by far the world's largest consumer of coal, the largest builder of new coal-fired power plants, and far and away the largest emitter of greenhouse gases. So my question to get us started is, how is it that China has become so absolutely prominent in just about everything that has to do with energy? Absolutely, Andy. Well, it's a reflection, I think, of several things. First of all, of course, China is the most populous nation uh, on the planet. Um, and so to some degree, uh, you're just seeing a concentration of emissions um, on the basis of a uh, uh, of a fast-growing economy that is also uh, a very populous economy. Um, speaking of, of the economy, China is also the second largest economy. Third and most important, though, um, China is really uh, the center of um, the world's industrial uh, economy. China is uh, really the hub of global manufacturing and the production of physical goods. It's also uh, the largest producer and uh, and most important country when it comes to most of the world's um, emissions and uh, intensive and energy intensive sectors, things like steel uh, manufacture or concrete uh, manufacture. Those are uh, processes and industries that uh, use a lot of energy uh, and generate a lot of greenhouse gas emissions. And China really sort of stands at the center of all that. One related factor that's just worth uh, emphasizing finally uh, is China's really uh, critical role as in global trade as the world's largest exporter. So not only is it uh, making all of these things and uh, playing a leading role in all of these energy and emissions intensive sectors, uh, but it really also stands in a lot of ways um, at the at the center uh, of the world's uh, economy and trade. Um, and for all of those reasons, China is really the single most critical uh, actor when it comes to 
uh, energy use, the energy transition, and to global greenhouse gas emissions. So China's manufacturing economy is very important to itself and obviously is, is a backbone of the global economy as well. So, so important. As has been well covered in the press, China did not introduce new or more aggressive climate targets at COP26, uh, which is actually going to end this week. I shouldn't say completely in the past tense. Today is Thursday, <laughs> November the 11th. And I wonder if you could contrast China's involvement this year or at this year's COP with recent years when China did appear to be positioning itself more actively in the role uh, of climate leader, particularly, I'd say, during the Trump years and also dramatically at the Paris COP six years ago. Sure. Well, I do think it's important to acknowledge um, up front that China has uh, done a couple of really significant and important things when it comes to uh, climate change. Um, and this kind of, there are several things that one could point to, but I think that the two um, biggest uh, and most recent have to be uh, the commitment that uh, China's uh, top leader, uh, Xi Jinping, made at uh, a little over a year ago at the UN uh, uh, General Assembly uh, to uh, decarbonize uh, China's economy, so to achieve net zero uh, carbon dioxide emissions uh, by 2060. That pledge uh, or commitment was later clarified to include all greenhouse gas emissions, not just uh, carbon dioxide. And that was uh, really significant because it was the first time that China had pledged to uh, definitively cut uh, its greenhouse gas emissions. Before that, uh, China's uh, commitments had all been related to peaking its emissions uh, or sort of bending the curve on its emissions, if you will, um, rather than reducing them in uh, absolute terms. The second thing that's really significant that uh, China has committed to doing uh, is to end uh, uh, financing uh, and support for the construction of coal-fired power plants um, outside China. Um, the direct emissions uh, impact of that, and, and that was uh, something that uh, Xi Jinping just announced um, this past September, just a couple of months ago, um, also at the UN General Assembly. Direct emissions impact uh, of that announcement was uh, less um, uh, significant than the, uh, the decarbonization, uh, or 2060, uh, pledge issued the year before, but it was pretty significant because what we're seeing increasingly is uh, China's environmental footprint um, kind of be lessened within China while um, being intensified abroad. And so it was sort of a recognition that uh, in order to really contribute to global sustainable, sustainable development, China would have to uh, uh, reconsider its environmental footprint beyond its borders as well. And so I think the coal uh, announcement was very significant in that respect. All of that being said, um, in the, you know, so these are sort of two big headline commitments. Um, below the surface, though, you're absolutely right to say that there's been a lot of um, kind of a mix, I would say, of uh, disappointment and sort of um, skepticism and head scratching uh, about some other um, sort of uh, uh, seemingly less ambitious uh, uh, policies and commitments that China has put forward that don't necessarily seem to align with the ambition of those two um, headline commitments. Um, so one example is the 14th five-year plan uh, targets for climate and energy uh, that China released last year, um, which are in some ways less ambitious than one might expect and certainly than one might hope for um, looking toward that 2060 um, net zero greenhouse gas emissions commitment. Also, as you pointed out, 
Uh, Xi Jinping uh, did not make the choice to travel to Glasgow, um, and seemingly uh, that was a, a kind of sign or signal that uh, he would be less personally involved uh, in uh, China's uh, uh, kind of uh, stance and, and positions uh, during the Glasgow uh, climate talks. You know, you talked a lot about what China has done in recent years, and I also want to point out that China actually has made moves to close quite a few coal mines. Uh, it's obviously got severe domestic air pollution problems, and it has tried to move away from coal. So it has taken domestic action. Uh, it has. And I think, you know, you do have to kind of step back, you know, as is so often the case, you know, there are sort of two ways. It's sort of a glass half full or half empty, uh, uh, you know, sort of split screen um, that you can take depending on uh, uh, on your point of view. I think one thing that uh, I often think is important to reflect on or, or sort of a way to one way to think about it. Um, is that China's uh, commitments on climate change um, have arguably uh, been the most ambitious uh, uh, undertaken by any developing economy. Um, that is to say, you know, a, 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 uh, an economy that's still very much in sort of a growth and development stage still has a lot of kind of significant development challenges, uh, extreme poverty, et cetera. Um, and yet those uh, commitments uh, and those ambitions don't quite match the, the reality um, of where we stand uh, in terms of the urgency of reducing emissions um, very, very quickly. So it's sort of on one hand, these are pretty ambitious commitments, uh, especially uh, in relation to what other uh, developing economies have said that they will do. On the other hand, um, it's still probably not uh, enough to really uh, avert uh, uh, dangerous climate change. Um, and beyond that, there are a lot of uncertainties around um, how fully and quickly uh, these commitments can be implemented on the ground throughout China. Let's take this opportunity now to go into the current situation that, that I guess it's played out over the last month. COP26, Glasgow is scheduled. It happens leading up to this. Uh, China enters an energy crisis where there is a shortage of electricity. Uh, electricity has to be cut off at least partially to some industries to make sure there is enough electricity, I, I, as I understand, for residential use. Uh, there's also the background of the Evergrande uh, real estate crisis, which can't make things easier. All this happens as COP26 approaches, and, and, and China looks like got its hands tied going into this. Is that right? Yes, I think that is right, Andy. Um, I, and I think just to sort of add a couple of words of uh, 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 of detail to that, there's you know China does face some significant macroeconomic uh, headwinds, and it's everything from continued uh, pressures uh, coming out of the pandemic in terms of recovering uh, as an export led uh, economy, also boosting uh, the share of consumption in its economy. That's sort of a long term development challenge for China to continue to grow. It's going to have to uh, increase the share of domestic consumption um, versus uh, reliance on exports and foreign um, investment. Uh, you've also got uh, uh, slowing uh, kind of population growth, which is creating some demographic headwinds. Uh, you're starting to get uh, some labor shortages in key uh, parts of the uh, of the economy. There are lots of macroeconomic kind of headwinds um, that uh, that China faces, um, and that does make um, the kind of both the economics and the politics of pursuing an aggressive uh, greenhouse gas in, uh, mitigation uh, policy for China uh, difficult. You know, we we sort of often tend to. 
um, I think, uh, automatically assume that, you know, China is an authoritarian country. Uh, Xi Jinping is an incredibly powerful leader. So, you know, kind of what he says goes. Um, that's true to a, a sort of very rough approximation. Um, but even uh, Xi Jinping can't just sort of will China uh, to uh, to fully uh, transform its economy. And in fact, one thing that we see politically is that there is a faction uh, within the uh, Chinese uh, sort of party and, and bureaucratic uh, apparatus that does think uh, that uh, China's moving too far too fast on its decarbonization and climate strategies um, at the cost of uh, poverty reduction, of jobs, uh, of economic growth. Uh, you do see this contest uh, playing out, and even Xi Jinping has to be sensitive to that. Um, and I think the energy supply disruptions that you're seeing uh, are one manifestation of how difficult it's going to be uh, politically, as well as how economically costly um, and disruptive this transition is going to be. That doesn't mean it's not going to happen, but it does mean that it's not going to be a, you know, an easy uh, lift. And just as a final point, I would add uh, in that respect, you know, I think China's situation does have a lot of similarities to um, the case of the U.S. and some other large economies where you know, there are uh, there remain some significant political and economic challenges uh, to really decarbonizing the economy. Well, I just wanted to say something about that here. You know, uh, we talk about China going into a COP in a difficult situation. The United States and Joe Biden went went to COP and he didn't have a congressional, you know, buy in. And he still doesn't have that buy in for the reconciliation package that would have most of the climate related components to it. So, China's situation is not unfamiliar generally, it sounds like. Yeah, I think that's absolutely uh, that's absolutely right. And I think um, actually Chinese uh, leaders and officials and Biden and their Biden administration counterparts would actually recognize, I think, if they were able to sit down and have a, you know, a fulsome, frank discussion about about the challenges that they face in implementing their climate policies, I think they would actually recognize a lot of the, the same challenges, uh, you know, across across countries. And that's probably the moment to uh, also acknowledge, which it's certainly we have to make sure that we address this. Um, we're speaking on uh, Thursday, uh, less than uh, than 24 hours ago, uh, came a, a, a kind of a surprise announcement that the U.S. and China had issued a joint uh, declaration during the Glasgow climate talks. Uh, really pledging to continue to work together uh, on climate change to ensure that uh, uh, that uh, the world moves faster and uh, and and more uh, amb- with greater ambition uh, to cut emissions. Um, so that is a significant symbolic uh, move, um, and there were one or two um, practically significant things in there. Most of it restated previous commitments or or sort of you know gave a nod to previous. Uh, commitments or announcements, but there was one thing in particular I just want to highlight, which is uh, a commitment to end the illegal uh, import of uh, timber and potentially wildlife products or other things that contribute to illegal deforestation. That is actually a significant driver of global deforestation, and this is really centered on China, illegal imports uh, into China. It's a significant driver of global deforestation, which is in turn a significant uh, source of uh, greenhouse gas emissions, but that would also be, if fully implemented, a really good thing for the world's biodiversity. Which, um, you know, we we should also acknowledge, even as we're focused on cutting emissions, um, is really in crisis. Um, so that's, I think, a, a good thing to celebrate. That even though there are a lot of kind of reasons, I think, to be 
skeptical and cautious about China's climate policy, this announcement and that vision to end uh, imports of illegal uh, lumber in particular is uh, worthy of some, uh, some celebration. The lumber component is promising. I think there'd be a lot of discussion uh, and disagreement over how substantive the rest of the, the the recent announcement is. But what does really stand out to me is it's almost a replaying of of Paris 2015, where at the last moment, the Chinese and the Americans got together to cut the deal, to cut the deal that resulted in being the, the, the Paris Climate uh, Agreement. We see a, a similar kind of dynamic here six six years later, and I guess it really kind of shows that these two countries really do see the importance, at least symbolically, of, of them trying to move the ball forward on, on addressing climate. That's right, Andy. And I, I think you're right that, you know, in large part, this declaration is symbolic. Um, there wasn't a whole lot new that would directly impact global emissions with, you know, the exception um, as I mentioned, to this sort of uh, deforestation commitment, um, one or two other things, but but you're right. I mean, it was primarily symbolic. You know, I I don't want to totally minimize the potential uh, importance of symbolism, um, and certainly when you're talking about global climate negotiations, you know, it, it really is fundamentally about diplomacy, about messaging, about um, sort of uh, strategy and prioritization, and in that context, words do have power. You know, it's not trivial. Um, on the other hand, uh, it's it's not something that is going to itself uh, really bend the curve uh, on uh, on global emissions. Um, I'll also just quickly point out, I mean, I think that dynamic that you highlighted where there's some kind of furious uh, last minute uh, kind of uh, largely U.S.-China um, uh, sort of uh, um, uh, jockeying or, or horse trading or negotiation. I mean, that is something that has really typified international climate negotiations, at least since uh, 2009 Copenhagen, which uh, really kind of uh, in in many ways fell apart um, because the U.S. and China um, and to a, to a degree also the, the EU just couldn't reach agreement. Um, so you do sort of tend to see this dynamic playing out. And I think it's significant that um, the U.S.-China dimension or relationship remains so, uh, so important uh, to these negotiations, despite all of the uh, deterioration that you've seen in, in U.S.-China relations more generally um, since that time, since, you know, the 2009 talks. You know, Scott, you're so steeped on the political situation in China. And I, I want to bring up a couple of things uh, that you mentioned earlier. And I think it, it ultimately ties into the, the question of political risk to the communist leadership that could potentially arise if the country moves too quickly or not carefully enough to decarbonize. And the point here is, again, that you brought up earlier, that China is a manufacturing-based economy. I think the government's trying to switch things over to services, but it still very much is manufacturing-based. It's the world's you know, kind of backbone manufacturer. And inherent in that manufacturing is abundant use of fossil fuels. So anything that would cut into that use or, or limit that use or discourage that use of fossil fuels is in a sense, at least with the current makeup of industry and the current technologies that we're using to run industry, is almost an attack potentially 
on the integrity of those industries. Maybe I'm being a little dramatic, but it seems like that to me. So can you tell us a little bit more about the political balancing act that the government has to, to take in terms of pushing forward on climate? And obviously it's doing very well in the business side of things in terms of manufacturing renewable technologies, um, promoting electric vehicles. But when we're looking at other heavy industries, tell us more about kind of the, the catch-22 that maybe the government finds itself in at times as it tries to move forward on climate and preserve and grow these industries that are so essential to its economic growth and I would imagine to a domestic social peace yeah, uh, so that's that's absolutely right, Andy. With emphasis on your um, uh, your point about uh, on sort of current makeup of the economy, and that's critical because the other sort of side to this story, and really what explains a lot of why China has uh, made these you know relatively ambitious commitments again, sort of um, in a developing economy context, um, is that uh, China's leaders uh, really do believe, and I think with with pretty good reason that uh, clean technologies are an important driver of future uh, economic growth. Renewables, uh, you, as you mentioned, uh, electric vehicles, et cetera. And sort of on a, a related but, but also important point, I mentioned that one of China's sort of macroeconomic uh, priorities, something that they really have to do uh, to keep growing, to provide you know, jobs and good incomes for, um, for their people, is to uh, shift uh, from a, a very manufacturing, export-led, uh, uh, sort of highly resource-intensive, uh, highly polluting economic model uh, to something that looks more like uh, the U.S. or other advanced uh, industrial uh, economies, which is, you know, much heavier proportion of services in the economy, um, higher value-added industries, uh, less pollution and resource-intensive, more uh, knowledge and, and sort of intellectual property and human capital-intensive fields. And if you think about it, that sort of dovetails largely with the idea of, uh, uh, of decarbonizing the economy. You're moving from you know, older, dirtier, more traditional uh, heavy industries um, toward these sort of more services-intensive uh, 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 sectors. And there's one final point that that's worth emphasizing, and that that's sort of more from a governance and, and political perspective. As uh, China's economy has developed, as it's uh, created the world's largest middle class, uh, people with disposable income, uh, there is more uh, uh, kind of priority placed um, on uh, public goods and social services, things like education, uh, healthcare. Uh, and environmental quality, clean air, clean water, parks. Uh, and you see the government and the, the China's party and, and, and the state uh, really trying to respond to that um, and provide those sort of um, quality of life factors and public goods that people care a lot about. And again, that dovetails, generally speaking, um, with the idea of reducing emissions um, and mounting some kind of energy transition. Now, last point, you know, kind of coming back to the premise of your question, it's a lot easier said than done. Um, and in the short term, there are a lot of hurdles uh, to doing that effectively, not least uh, the continued relatively high cost um, of renewables, uh, some lingering technical challenges that make it pretty difficult to fully uh, displace coal, which, you know, whatever its drawbacks, uh, remains cheap and plentiful in China. 
So Scott, that brings up a related question. You know, what are the barriers to actually implementing progressive energy policies at this point within China beyond what's already been done? Yeah, well, one one thing that um, is, I think, really important to keep in mind when it comes to China, and again, um, you know, I think people sort of tend to assume that uh, China is a pretty, uh, you know, sort of centralized country, but in fact, it's actually very decentralized in a lot of ways. Uh, provincial, uh, municipal, and local governments have a lot of power, um, and in particular, a lot of flexibility to determine how um, uh, centrally uh, defined policies are implemented. Um, and that carries a lot of advantages. It means that, you know, you don't necessarily have to uh, do things the same way in uh, uh, Xinjiang as you do in uh, in Beijing. Um, but it also creates the potential for um, uh, officials at these local levels to kind of not follow through on their commitments to um, enact policies in ways that have uh, perverse incentives. So, you know, just to give one uh, example, there's some evidence I, I came across recently that um, local officials are uh, trying to uh, ramp up their emissions, at least in some places, um, as high as possible ahead of 2030, which is when China has said it will peak um, its emissions. So if you kind of think about it, that's actually a pretty shrewd and rational um, approach. Uh, you want to get as high a kind of uh, ceiling um, for your emissions as you can, because it'll be that much easier to cut emissions when you eventually have to do so. It's like, get your emissions in today while you still can. Bingo. That's exactly right. Um, and that is perfectly rational and very shrewd. Um, also, exactly the the wrong thing to do for the planet. Um, so that's, uh, I think, a, a good, sharp example um, of how these sort of dynamics and decentralization uh, can be problematic when it comes to China and climate change. Uh, the other thing I'll just sort of mention briefly is um, part of this sort of decentralization is a reflection of the fact that there are huge disparities in terms of income and levels of development across Chinese regions. If you go to uh, the big cities, Beijing, Shanghai, Shenzhen, um, frankly, the difference between you know those places and the U.S. or other uh, industrial uh, economies is almost negligible at this point. Um, but if you go to the parts of the interior, to the west, to rural areas, um, there is a massive discrepancy in terms of income, levels of development, um, capacity uh, to you know, adopt clean technology. Um, and uh, the kind of decentralization uh, pol uh, policies that China has uh, enacted really recognize that. So they have expectations that the Beijing's and Shanghai's are going to sharply reduce emissions, um, but there is potential for some of the poorer regions to actually continue to increase their emissions, um, at least uh, heading toward the middle of the century. You know, just curious here, do you have in China something akin to the, the red state, blue state divide in the United States, both in terms of support for some of these policies, as well as, you know, I would imagine in some areas that may be more dependent on fossil fuels, does industry, and I don't, I don't really understand how this works in China, does industry have the ability to either promote or oppose forcefully some of these policies, as we've seen often happen in the West? Well, I think short answer, yes. Uh, and I mean, you know, one thing that I've, I've said before, and I, I, I think I would stand by is that, you know, I think the governor or provincial party secretary, those are often the two most important leaders um, in a, a place like uh, Sanxi province, which is sort of known as China's uh, main coal producing province, uh, would would uh, have a lot to talk about um, with the governor of West Virginia or with Senator Joe Manchin. 
I think they would see a lot of kind of climate and energy issues much the same way, um, just because they um, uh, they share a lot of similarities in terms of being major kind of coal producing regions, um, having uh, in some ways, you know, I don't want to overstate it, but in some ways similar uh, kind of cultural outlook, social uh, profiles, socioeconomic profiles, et cetera. However, um, I think there's one big difference, which is, uh, you know, China's state and, and party apparatus does have a lot of kind of uh, firepower um, and coercive capabilities that that are lacking in, you know, a, a system like uh, like the U.S. Um, and so companies particularly, they have more power to kind of slow down or water down reforms, not a lot of power to actually stop them. Um, so at this point, there's really, I think, no prospect, uh, at least in the short term, of uh, China uh, ending or unwinding the commitments that Xi Jinping has personally made on climate change. Um, but where there is a lot of uncertainty is around, particularly at the local level, how much and how quickly these commitments will be reflected in you know, changes on the ground. One last time, I want to return to this issue of China being very much a manufacturing economy, very much dependent on heavy industry. These industries not only are major energy consumers, but they are also some of the most difficult to abate industries in terms of their carbon emissions. Energy is used, coal is used in, in production of steel, etc. Does China have a plan to address these industries, which, again, are so central to its economy? Yes and no. Um, yes, in the sense that there are policies. And I mean, I think EV support um, is part of this. There's uh, quite a bit of effort being put into like decarbonizing uh, uh, the transport sector through use of uh, hydrogen, potential use of hydrogen fuels, um, biofuels, uh, you know, just more efficient uh, electric vehicles. But it's a technical challenge that remains for uh, really the world at large. At the moment, we don't really have good enough batteries to fully replace uh, the internal combustion engine and sort of hydrocarbon fuels, uh, particularly for heavier vehicles, for um, medium heavy duty trucks, um, you know, large equipment, and very particularly for uh, the aviation and, uh, uh, and marine uh, sectors. Um, probably we will get there through a combination of uh, batteries, uh, renewable, uh, uh, renewable power, biofuels, conceivably even miniaturized uh, nuclear reactors. But at the moment, um, we're we're not there, and it's not exactly clear um, how we will get from where we are today to there. Let me ask you a couple more questions here uh, to finish up. One is this is something that's been bandied about quite a lot. I just wanted to ask, you know, diplomatic tensions between the U.S. and China have increased in recent years over Taiwan and other issues. I think uh, tensions have also increased somewhat with, with Europe. You know, to what extent might sour diplomatic ties with the U.S. and other countries play a part in China's or have played a part in China's decision to play a smaller role at the most recent COP? And will it have any impact going forward? You know, it's a good question and one that, you know, I can really only sort of give a hopefully a somewhat educated, uh, you know, kind of guess uh, on. I, I'm not sure it plays uh, a huge role. I mean, I think it's it's worth kind of underscoring that although tensions have sort of risen between China and a range of countries, not just the United States, when it comes to Taiwan, um, that is primarily an issue 
um, when it comes to U.S.-China relations uh, to a lesser degree, uh, uh, China-Japan relations, um, and you know to an even lesser degree, relations with other countries. Um, but it's it's sort of chiefly an issue in U.S.-China relations. So I think the you know Xi's decision not to come to to Glasgow uh, probably isn't so much a reflection of of those uh, issues. I would sort of read it more as. Um, in line of what I have been hearing from a lot of Chinese interlocutors sort of in, in track two type uh, discussions, which is that uh, China really wants its existing climate and energy commitments to sort of stand on their own. Um, it doesn't believe in, uh, you know, doesn't sort of intend to use Glasgow as a, you know, a flashy kind of photo op opportunity, um, but really uh, wants its existing commitments to kind of speak for its uh, commitment. On climate, um, there may also be some domestic politics and economic considerations behind C's decision. I mean, I think uh, the energy supply disruptions and the sort of amount of grumbling that that's caused in among China's commercial class shouldn't be uh, understated. So perhaps C uh, simply didn't want to be sort of seen, um, you know, seemingly kind of pushing climate issues at the expense of. Uh, more immediate economic ones, and and I suppose it is possible that he wanted to avoid, um, you know, potentially being embroiled in uh, wider political disputes with uh, the U.S. and with the EU. But I, I would I would doubt I would probably put those last, uh, just because um, the U.S. and 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 the EU have you know tended to sort of to insulate at least high level climate discussions from these broader tensions. So final question for you, given the challenges that we see moving forward and China's recent decision to increase coal production, we really actually haven't even spoken much about the the electricity crisis, but China is increasing coal production. Uh, it has allowed the price of electricity to go up as well so that generators can uh, profitably produce electricity with coal so that there is enough electricity in the country. But you know, given given that I guess that short-term trend that we're going to see increased coal-fired power production, is it realistic that China will peak its carbon emissions before the year 2030 and what's your view on China's ability to go carbon neutral by 2060 again because so much of the economy is tied into industries that are so dependent on fossil fuels? Right. Well, um, I, I think the the twenty thirty peaking objective is um, is is pretty uh, achievable, uh, and it would be very surprising if uh, China were to miss it, despite um, the as you pointed out, uh, continued uh, investment in new coal coal plants um, and things like that. Now, what's really important, and, and this sort of ties to I guess my answer to the second part of your question about the twenty sixty. Uh, commitment is I do have some concerns and a little bit of skepticism. And what um, reconciles those two apparently contradictory um, responses is that peaking is not the same as cutting, um, which is to say that uh, saying that your emissions are going to um, effectively plateau and sort of, you know, uh, uh, presumably, though not uh, uh, necessarily begin to decline is not the same as saying, you know, make absolute uh, cuts or or emissions reductions, which is from a climate perspective, what's really important. I mean, yes, you want to um, stop increasing emissions, but you also need to cut them. And how quickly you cut them is just as well. It's not just as important, but is is uh, as important um, 
uh, I would say, are also as important as uh, uh, as how much you as how much you cut them. Um, so that's really where the the uncertainty kind of comes in. Um, I don't doubt the political commitment to the 2060 target, which is to say, I believe that uh, you know from Xi Jinping on down. Uh, China's leaders are sincere in believing that this is a, a significant issue. It's a, you know, a strategic priority to um, to reduce emissions to net zero by 2060. Where I, I'm a little bit concerned is more on the technical and economic fronts. I'm not sure it is possible with current technology uh, to cut those emissions that deeply and on that timeline at an acceptable cost. Now, you know, we have a lot of investment in uh, clean technology research and development. Uh, 40 years is a long time. Um, we're sure to see some significant technological improvements. But on current technology, we just don't have a good way to, to decarbonize big, uh, diverse economies at, at a uh, really what I would say is an acceptable economic cost. Um, we really need more investment in research and development to lower that cost. Um, and therefore to make it you know, more politically viable to achieve this energy transition. Scott, thanks very much for talking. Thanks so much, Andy. Thanks for having me. Today's guest has been Scott Moore, Director of China Programs and Strategic Initiatives at the University of Pennsylvania. I'd like to introduce the newest member of the Energy Policy Now team. Nick Rolander is a very sharp graduate student in environmental engineering and technology here at Penn. He'll be contributing ideas, insights, and research to the podcast going forward. Visit the Climate Center's website for more podcasts, as well as energy policy research and digests. To keep up with the latest from the Center, subscribe to our monthly newsletter on our website. Thanks for listening to Energy Policy Now, and have a great day.